Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 185 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the smartest and funniest people in show business. He's one half of the comedy team Key and Peel, which was at the center of an Emmy-winning sketch show of the same name on Comedy Central from 2012 through 2015. And more recently, he wrote and directed Get Out, a $4.5 million film that released in February, grossed more than $250 million worldwide, and remains the most critically acclaimed film of 2017 so far, Jordan Peele. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 38-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how being biracial impacted his sense of identity as a child, what prompted him to drop out of college in New York and move to Chicago to pursue comedy, and how that eventually led him to a job at Mad TV, why in 2008 he received and had to decline an offer to realize his ultimate dream of appearing on Saturday Night Live, and how that gut punch shaped what he did next, how he and Keegan-Michael Key first began working together and wound up co-creating, co-writing, and co-starring on a show that dealt with social issues, particularly race in America, as humorously and powerfully as anything on TV. What inspired him, starting long before even Key and Peele, to write a screenplay about being an outsider, and how that evolved into a horror satire about a black man meeting his white girlfriend's family with him directing it for a major studio and the resulting film being released into America just as racial tensions were at their worst in years, with a white man replacing as president the black man he had spent years denigrating, plus much more. On this podcast, the big interview is usually preceded by a banter segment about the last week in the awards race, but we're skipping that this week because I'm rushing off to the airport to fly across the country and see my dad, who had a heart attack this morning. So if you're a thinking and or praying type, I hope you'll keep him in your thoughts and or prayers. Either way, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Jordan Peele. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We always begin just with the basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Manhattan, Upper West Side. I grew up. My mother was administrative assistant for many years. And my father, I don't really know what he did. Well, if I've read it correctly, that was because, I guess, after the age of six, he was sort of out of your life. That's right. Now, because race is so integral to what Get Out is all about, I wonder if we can just talk about your own sense of of racial identity. Because as I understand it, he was an African-American. Your mother was white. When he goes out of the picture after six, you who are obviously a person of color, are now in a world that's primarily, at least at home, I guess, and family white. How did all of this affect your sense of racial identity? And and was it just sort of fine, or was did you have inner conflict about any of this? You know, I think there was inner conflict that I wasn't necessarily processing at the time, but I've, I've you know, just reviewing my own work in Key and Peel and Get yeah. Out, it, it seems very clear that I'm obsessed with race. <laughs> You know, I I think the the trickiest part is that there's no real right answer as to who I am or how I should identify. I remember when I was a kid, maybe six years old, it was the first time I took the standardized test and they said, what are you, Caucasian, African-American? I knew I had a white mother. So I always would check the other mm-hmm. box, mm-hmm. which I think that in itself is already a kind of a disorienting that that in itself is a building block of who I am is, you know, sort of identifying with this other. Mm-hmm. As time went on, I grew to consider myself African-American and I still do. And is that just because when people see you, they know you're not white. So they you're a person of color, right? That's right. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm I'm a black man, yeah. and it's clear. And I think that there was something 
important to me to have a, 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 an identity like that. But it also put me, set me on this path of challenging what the the definition of black man in this country means or what it's supposed to mean. And that's a lot of, you know, what I would do in Key and Peele yeah. and Get Out as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in my wiring is the existential crisis and questions about race and identity. Well, and it's interesting. I know we'll circle back around to this in, in a little bit, but the way what you've been describing is in a lot of ways similar to what President Obama described in his memoir just about this, you know, I think you had the same situation, black father, white mother, growing up not quite sure how he fit into things. And I know that he was integral in in terms of you guys going ahead and doing Key and Peele down the road, I believe. But we'll let's not get ahead of ourselves. As a kid, what were your what were your interests? Because I I read that by the time you were thirteen, you already predicted the future that's now happened in a way. You were you were looking to be a director. Yeah, by the time I was thirteen, I, I'd certainly settled on I want to be a director. Film was and movies were my greatest vice and going to the theater and watching them was my was really you know my church yeah. it, was, it was borderline spiritual yeah. for me i would see the same movies over and over again and so i was pretty certain and i was also a visual artist also had been acting that early and i think one thing about film that i felt was that it, I, well i had so much respect for film that it was very hard for me and you know you look it took you know, literally, what, 30 years later or whatever, for me to gain the trust in myself, the confidence to say, okay, you know what, I've got this skill set that it would take to put up, make a movie that could sort of contend with my favorite movies. So if, if not now, then never. But there was a long period where, you know, I sort of convinced myself that it would never happen. Now, the movies that you were most enamored with as a kid growing up, let's say around the time of 13 when you decided to become that the dream would be to be a director what were they of a particular genre or it was just across the board you know it was kind of across the board but it was movies like edward scissorhands i loved thelma and louise mm-hmm. i loved dracula ram stoker's dracula yeah. by, by coppola i really loved all good movies but i was drawn specifically to movies that represented an outsider or another and I think, you know, horror in many ways is the is the ultimate genre of the outsider. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was a very interesting time in horror thriller where we as audience members were being given the opportunity to relate to the monsters in question, right? It's like Nightmare on Elm Street. By, night, by the time Nightmare on Elm Street 4 came along, <laughs> the audience identifies with Freddy more than any of these interchangeable right protagonists, you know? So yeah, that that was kind of my... Now, what about comedy? When did that first enter the picture? Comedy first entered early. I mean, it was... I think In Living Color was a huge tentpole for me and and something that really... Watching that show with my mother and seeing how she would laugh at the, you know, some of the the naughty (laughs) and, and mischievous points of it really carved out this idea for me that like comedy is about stepping over the line in order to know where that line is and that there's a real catharsis that comes with laughing at the darkest things of humanity. I also love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and I loved Saturday Night Live. And then I, you know, I just had a, as a performer, I felt like I, I, I just had sort of a knack for it. I had a brain for it. When did that realization first occur? Well, I I started performing when I was maybe 11 years old. Really? Like in what capacity? So there's this music theater group, children's musical theater group called Tada. Okay. It's in New York. It's still there. It's fantastic. I'm on the board there. And they do original musical theater and train kids to work with sort of all ages from like 7 to 17. It was a game changer for me to have an outlet for this thing I was so passionate about, which was plays, musicals, movies, all of that performing thing. But then I, you know, I felt like a sort of comedic instinct was creeping out as early as that. So eventually you go off to Sarah Lawrence College. And I wondered at the outset, 
what you imagine you would come out of there doing? Because I know that it sounds like about halfway through you pulled the plug and just started, you know, went to work. But what was the outlook when you started? Well, so going to Sarah Lawrence was kind of my ultimate betrayal against the idea of going of, of, of becoming a director. Okay. And I was so drawn to the environment of Sarah Lawrence. I was drawn to the freedom of getting to, you know, I, I had hated school a lot. I had a pretty good <laughs> high school experience, but right. in general, I hated school because I, I just felt that I could just feel when I'm being force fed right. information. And, you know, I felt like if all that time I was forced to learn the the basics, which sure, I, I guess I believe they are the basics and there's a necessary thing there. But if all that time I had been allowed to choose what I wanted to learn about, I would have learned four yeah. times as much. And right. so that's what Sarah Lawrence was for me. It was like this ultimate in getting to choose my own curriculum. And so I went as a puppetry major was my sort of declared major. That's actually a major? I didn't know that. No, it's not actually a major, okay. but that you know, that was the whole mind frame of going to school. It's like, you right. know what? I'm taking charge of my own thing. So if I say it's puppetry, it's puppetry. I'm going to learn. I'm going to go to a puppetry class, <laughs> which they did have oh with this God. guy, Dan Herlin. I'm going to take psychology for the, the, the storytelling. I'm going to take some archetypal theory classes, which... You know, Sarah Lawrence is a certain fame for. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take some literature classes. I'm going to take some social issues classes, a heck of a lot of theater, and some film classes. So I took some film history classes. That's amazing. So what was it then? It sounds like you were doing all these things that were actually now of interest to you as opposed to, I, I can totally relate. At junior high school, you want to shoot yourself. It's, right. it's horrible or whatever. But so why then, after I guess your sophomore year, did you say, I'm not coming back? So I, you know, part of this this grand experiment of intellect was finding this improv sketch group, or or I should say, founding it. You know, my wow. several of my friends and I founded this within impro- Sarah Lawrence. Within Sarah Lawrence, and we we took you know a couple comedy classes, a couple of the things we learned in the theater classes, and my friend Becky Drysdale was also one of the founders who um, had gone to Chicago and for a summer and sort of witnessed the improv community there. And so she were recreating that at Sarah Lawrence, recreating that thing. And that was when it really clicked where like, look, Hey, if I'm good at anything, I'm, I'm good at this. And furthermore, I felt like the, the state of comedy at the time was such that if I dedicated myself to this full on, that there would have to be a place for me. At the end of that journey. And roughly what year would this have been? That would have been 99, 2000. And so from there, you and Becca Drysdale go off to Chicago, which is like the capital of comedy, it seems like, from everybody I've talked to is in that world. Mm-hmm. I guess you started at Improv Olympic doing sketch stuff. But take me through if you can. I know that I don't know the order of this, but I know you ended up at Second City as well. And then also something that we talked with. Seth Meyers about when he did his episode, you ended up in Amsterdam. So mm-hmm. how did all of that mesh together? What was the ordering and value? Well, you know, so Becky and I went to Chicago, total you know starving artist style. We got a probably shared a one bedroom, turned it and converted it into two rooms. We took classes, but we more importantly we put up our own sketch show called Two White Guys. Okay, and it was it was musical. It was kind of us using every piece of our sketch imagination. And I think in a in a community that was, as you said, famous for being the mecca where you come to learn, we had an interesting momentum because we weren't going to wait to get get selected for a stage. It wasn't. We kind of we were just going to make our thing. Right. And you know, Sharna Halpern at Improv Olympic saw that we deserved a, a spot. And so we had a spot there. We had a we we did a show at the Second City Skybox Theater. So we kind of made our own way there. And I guess I should ask you quickly if I can just interrupt for one sec. How did your mom feel about you dropping out of school to go and do this? You know, when I called her to tell her, I think from the the way I was talking to her, the sound of my voice, it was it was clear that first of all I had made up my mind and you know, I kind of said it like I said the way I said to you. I was mm-hmm. like, look, yeah, this is something everybody wants to do, but this is something that 
people kind of dabble in and then luck into. But the the few people who really say, you know what, screw this, I'm not going to have a fallback plan. I'm going to do it. And she knew I was good. You know, she had seen reviews. You know, it's like I think I got a real shot and who knows where it takes me so i'm sure I'm, that gave you more confidence once you're out there to at least feel or at least a sense of a support i mean totally totally know. it was so it was it was pivotal so once you're you're out there you're doing your own show with becky was it also simultaneously doing stuff with second city or or when did that enter the picture second city was you know essentially left chicago before i could really be hired on second city stage. So we left after a year and a half. So really what we did at Second City was take classes and I was a host. So I would seat people for the main stage show Mm -hmm. and I would watch every night, you know, the improv set of the main stage show and just get that, you know, feeling of, of urgency for my, you know, wanting, wanting to do that would just be hurting me in the stomach at night. Was there anyone great doing it at that time? Oh, there was some great, I mean, the stage that I watched when I first went there, it was a show called The Psychopath Not Taken. It was Stephanie Weir, Kevin Dorff, Rich Tallarico, Susan Messing, Tammy Sager, TJ Jagodowski, and they were brilliant. So when Second City comes up in your history, what it really was was not a matter of you were never part of the company. You were just in the in the orbit of it, and it was motivating you to continue doing what you were doing. Yeah. For a, a year and a half, it was my number one motivation, my number one inspiration. And I was more active as a performer in an improv Olympic. Right. But yeah, it's it was Second City was why I was there. So how do you end up with Seth in Amsterdam? All right, so well then, Boom Chicago in Amsterdam is just this fantastic theater that hires Americans. It's American-founded, so some, basically some Northwestern graduates went there and said, what if we started doing comedy out, out here? And it just worked. And the reason for there is what, the pot laws or what? Well, part partly yeah. the lifestyle, yeah. right? It's like Amsterdam is awesome. They had taken right. a trip, and it's just it's just better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, in so many ways, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it's, it, it has its problems as well, but it's, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And yeah, there's a certain freedom. And they hired me. A guy named Dave Buckman, who was recruiting and I guess artistic director at the time, brought me out. And the founders, you know, Andrew Moscos, Pep Rosenfeld, Ken Schaefel at the time, just had this amazing system going. So that was, you get to do improv and sketch six nights a week in front of a international crowd. I heard that's where you really got your impersonation abilities down. Why was that? Well, we would have some improv games where, you, you know, the audience yells out a bunch of people and you just, if you don't have an impression of them, you're expected to do it anyway. <laughs> so it, it basically, the hardest thing about doing impressions is in order to get a good impression, you have to do a bad impression for a long right, time. Right. People don't want to get caught doing bad impressions. No. But if you can volunteer your your bad to mediocre impression, right. <laughs> often you can work on it. Right. So at a certain point, I guess you clearly returned from Amsterdam. Was that to then go back to Chicago? That was to go to Mad TV. I'm trying to figure out from different things I read preparing for this, where along the line you first crossed paths with one Keegan Michael Key. And I read one point it was in Chicago, but then it was actually you guys auditioned around the same time for Mad TV. What's the actual story there? So right at the maybe six months before I ended up coming to Mad TV, and I didn't know that was in the cards, Boom Chicago and Amsterdam did this stage swap experiment for a week they switched stages with the Second City main stage. Wow. So that that stage, they went out to Amsterdam, and we came to Second City Chicago. So I did get to perform on the, the Second City okay. stage. We were doing our Boom Chicago review. And Second City has another stage called the ETC stage, which is just as funny. It's just physically a little bit of a smaller mm-hmm. s- stage, a different show. And Keegan was on that. And you guys met then, or it wasn't until Matt TV? So yeah, no, we bonded then. We had like you know a couple nights of just nerding out about comedy. Right. He was certainly this presence in the Second City community. I had been away for a few years, so I, I, I didn't know him. But he was, as a performer, he was just like, you know, just a total 
freight train of comedic energy. And he was just so good. And, you know, he had won at least one Jeff Award for his his performance in this review. And I came and saw it and was just blown away. Now, I could be way off about this, but my sense is that at that time in the Chicago comedy community, and maybe still, it's not the most diverse community, is it? No. And so was it also like to some extent just coming from a similar situation there? I mean, as I understand it, he's also biracial. I just can't imagine that there were that many other people that were in that circle. Yeah, I mean, at that at that time, it felt the occupants of the stage felt fairly proportional to the reality of the the, of the community, or maybe maybe even greater. But you know, it's yeah. like you basically odds are there's one black performer, if that, yeah, on one of these stages. And I think you know, I like to think that the diversity has been improved in improv and been pushed a little bit, but it's like, you know, turning the Titanic to sure, a certain yeah, extent. Right, right. But yeah, there was the bond of like, oh, dude, we got this this black guy out here, you know, killing it on Second City. And so, yeah, there was def- definitely a bond. So you go off to audition for Mad TV and I guess at that point deploy a bunch of these impersonations that you've been cultivating. Is it just coincidental that I guess he was also auditioning at the same time or or how did that all go? It may have been, you know, I'm sure there's a, a, a certain element of coincidence to it. I think they were, you know, Matt TV was pretty good with diversity. You know, I think they kind of recognized they were they were at least trying to be more in the mold of the living color mm-hmm. than what was at that point was sort of the traditional Second City SNL sort of ratio. But I mean, like you didn't sit down when you were with Keegan in Chicago and say like, hey, we should go out together for no 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 uh, it wasn't like that yeah. but i basically what i'm trying to say is i think they were looking for black people oh, they were. you know what i mean i think i think i you know i imagine but i i also imagine it was a situation where they you know kudos to them they got probably one more than they were even going for and we ended up on a, a cast with ari spears and i can't remember if deborah Wilson was in the cast, or she just returned a few times, but it was a pretty diverse cast. I loved that show years. growing up. Was Will Sasso still around, or was that after him? He was around, but yeah. he was he wasn't in the cast Not anymore. The so, yeah. but I, you know, I met him a couple times. Yeah, it really did seem like we we came in this year where everyone's favorite character had moved on. <laughs> you know, everyone. You know, so we were kind of like we had a big <laughs> hump to crawl over in terms of winning over the right. the Mad TV audience. So you joined there for the ninth season. I guess you were there for five or six years. Yeah, five years. In that time, I guess, did it feel to you, it's, my sense was that as great as Mad TV often was, for audiences and even for people at Mad TV, I would imagine that the top of the mountain is still SNL. Yeah, although, you know, it, it's one of those things where you, I presumed that that was a done deal. You know that it wasn't going to happen. That that wasn't going to happen. I mean, there's you don't hear of anybody going from Mad TV to SNL. That just doesn't that just doesn't happen. It wouldn't happen. It actually has happened a couple. You know, Taron Killam did it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that there was this. There was a little bit of a sense of like, ah, well, you know, I didn't make it to SNL, which by the way had the extra flavor of being able to go back to New York, where I'm from, born and raised. This show, the opportunity of Mad TV, I didn't overlook how fortunate I was to be on that show. Now, wasn't there at one point something that came up where it looked like you might be able to do what Killiam did? Like, what happened there? Well, that was just, you know, toward the end of my last year at Mad, um, there was a writer's strike. And we didn't know if we were going to be coming back. If we did, there would be four more episodes in my contract. And in that time, I auditioned for SNL. And I, you know, the basically, you know, I, it was, it was, I guess it was 2007, 2008, Barack Obama was running. That was the time I put together the, the Obama impression for the first time. So yeah, I, I'm, I basically, I, I, I tried to get on the show. I'm very thankful that they, they offered me mm-hmm. a spot at the time, but uh, I couldn't get out of the Mad TV contract. Was there any sense of let me go to Mad TV and ask to be let out, or or you just knew it was not going to happen? Yeah, no, I did. And I they did. They weren't going to do that. No, no, they weren't going to do that. And you know, I had a lot of I had a lot of anger about that for a long time. But ultimately, it was a real it was a it was a teaching moment and a lesson in that you can't 
you can't sort of expect the the system to kind of look out for you. You have to make your own way. And ultimately, you know, if I sign a contract, I'm signing that contract. So I can't, I can't expect somebody, you know, somebody to let me go to a show that is theoretically the rival. You right. know, it's it's just wasn't wasn't a realistic ask. And so I say. that was you said like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. It wasn't for another decade that we finally saw get out, but it wasn't it in fact around that time that you started to, at least the idea started to gestate. So I, you know, I went through a, a kind of a dark time. Because <laughs> of the SNL thing. Because of that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and really the, the brutal thing was, you know, this feeling that LA wasn't for me and I would get to go back to my friends and family and do the dream that I, you know, you always picture when you say, I'm going to go try and be a sketch comedian. And, you know, all of a sudden I wasn't going to go back to Mad TV because I was too angry about it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I was kind of left with this crossroads of saying, well, what what do you do then? And I took all that negative emotion I was having and I really put it into the future. And I said, look, you know, this is an opportunity to redefine what I can do. And I just started picturing this idea of, first of all, being, you know, being the producer. So being the person who, you know, and this was also after that, you know, writer strike as well. It was like this feeling of like, wow, like the, the artist doesn't have powers. The producers get all the power. And so, Part of me was like, look, if I can be an artist and be the producer, how do I get that? How do I control your own fate? How do I? Yeah. How do I get to do what what Steven Spielberg got to do? What what would be the steps that would get me there? And the first answer is, well, I have to get a lot better. I, I have to get my craft down. And so I started writing many projects with no particular desire that any of them would necessarily get made, but I just followed the fun. So I followed what was most fun to write when it was most fun to write it. And if it got unfun, I'd either figure out how to make it fun or I'd move to something else. And and Get Out was one of those projects. And so just to clarify, I guess it was around 2008 when your Mad TV era ended and it wasn't until 2012 when Key and Peele went on the air. So there's that period there where it sounds like you're developing ideas, you're working on things. But obviously somewhere in there, you and Keegan, I don't know if reconnected is the right word. I don't know if you'd ever been out of touch, but like, how did that come into play that you two might now do something together? Well, it actually started as a really brilliant strategic notion from our manager in common, Joel Zadak at Principato Young. Keegan and I always, we did great work together on Mad TV. We're just, we're famous friends. Like it's, you know, we, we, we love each other and we're kind of a formidable team. And so I think the idea was like, you know, obviously there's sort of a vacuum in sketch. Either one of you guys could sell your show individually. What if you did a duo? It's brilliant, brilliant idea. Keegan and I went away. We sort of came up with the the sketches, you know, the pilot, and we we wrote. And it was, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of kudos to Joel for the in, inspiration on that. So it ends up at Comedy Central. You guys have both said separately. I've read different interviews where you talk about the fact that it was in the middle of Obama's first term when this was being, when this was all coming together. I think it went on maybe in the re-election year of 2012. You've implied that you guys might not have wanted to do it, or it might not have been as received as well as it was had that not been going on in the world around you. Why would that be? Well, I mean, the surface answer to that is, you know, we literally sold it with the Obama Luther translator sketch, you know, so. Yeah. You know, I got, I had a good impression. Right. We had a good take, and I think that they knew that if nothing else, there was something really relevant right. there. But I think more importantly, for you know, we definitely would have wanted to do this show. But I think it, you know, the whole pro, the whole tricky notion with starting a sketch show is that anytime you're trying to be funny, the cards are stacked against you. People don't like 
to watch people try to be funny. <laughs> In fact, if you try and fail, it, you are hated for making them <laughs> sit through such an uncomfortable thing. With a sketch show, I, we, we knew the only way for this to succeed was that it would have to be, we'd have to explore what we could bring to the, the sketch, the world of sketch that hadn't been done before, what was uniquely us, and we're both mixed. And we realized that that identity hadn't been explored in sketch, you know. And so it became, I mean, the way it's been described by others, and I guess, I don't know if you would sign on to this idea, but it was basically to sum up most of what you did. It's using satire to examine social issues predominantly related to the black experience in America. And, and really that, that examination of what does black mean? What does it mean to be a black person, African-American what does it mean to be a black man? What are you supposed to be? What are we not? And Barack Obama had brought that into whole question into question <laughs> in a epic way. You know, a few now years why ago. would you? You've talked about the fact that he made it on the one hand, he basically made it cool to be nerdy is one thing I'd read you said, mm -hmm. and that to some extent, as somebody who had grown up in a largely white community, but was seen in the world, obviously, as a black person or a person of color, you had been given some flack about the way you talked or things like that. And so could you personally, just as an individual, did, did you really tap into Obama for reasons like that? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the big you know things we would hit on in our sketches, you know, is the code switching phenomenon, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, Everybody does to an extent, but certainly those of us who sort of identify somewhere in the middle may do it more. Certainly it's seen Obama do it. Yeah, I mean for me, you know, I grew up I grew up in, in New York, so it was not it wasn't it wasn't like I grew up in a white world. Right. I grew up in a very a very urban environment, real real mixed bag mixed bag. But within that environment it was very clear there was a way I was supposed to be. It was the way I was supposed to talk. As a, as, a, as, a, as a black kid. And yeah, that was some of the most challenging kind of identity questions for me to r wrestle with as a, as a child. It's like, should I, be, should I be changing the way, I, am I supposed to be blacking it up <laughs> as a child in school, you know? How did you end up resolving that in your own mind about how you were supposed to be, just be, your, be yourself? I just, yeah, I was just myself. I've always, you know, that was the, the beauty of, my role models and my mother were always very supportive and instilled a, a remarkable confidence in in me and myself. So I'm lucky and I'm, I'm grateful that I never felt myself truly succumb to any kind of pressure to be something I'm not. So to, to come back now to this show that this is all going to be, at, all this stuff we're talking about is at the center of, it goes on the air did you immediately realize you guys had something that was clicking with people or was there a moment when you realized we're actually going to survive as a show? No, you know, I mean, it. when we first aired, you know, the first reaction that I was expecting was, we don't like this. We don't like it. <laughs> first of all, we're stepping outside the box of what is expected from black entertainment and we had both, you know, black and white people who didn't like us for different <laughs> reasons for challenging that box, right. you know, and I had been expecting that. And so the idea was like, yeah, if we can get one more season, then, you know, it's just like what happens every every year on SNL. The newcomers get panned and everyone hates them. Right. And then a couple of years later, it's Will Ferrell. Right. And you go, okay, well, <laughs> giving an audience a comfort with you as the jester is imperative to that that whole idea that if you're trying too hard, you're you're not you're automatically not funny. So yeah, well, once we got that that pickup, we were I think confident that we were gonna continue to break down and our fanship would grow. So. You guys chose to have it last five seasons, and there are so many great moments that I could ask you, but I hope I can just briefly ask you for the yes. first thing about three great ones. Okay. You referenced the first already. It was, I guess, in the pilot, the the anger translator. Just to remind listeners, you've basically got you doing Obama mm -hmm. and Keegan saying what he's really thinking. And I just wonder for you guys, you know, with that one, you knew you had a 
a winner at least with that sketch. Talk about that one. Yeah, well, you know, I did I did feel partial to my Obama impression, and there weren't <laughs> there weren't a, there weren't a lot out there, right? <laughs> and so I we 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 knew we had something there, but I think more importantly, we did we knew the take was something that was saying what a lot of people were thinking and was kind of going relatively unsaid. And it's a very similar project that Obama, Luther, Anger Translator, a very similar project in its origin to the purpose of Get Out, which is to address that, you know, Obama, the, the resistance towards Obama, you know, if you look at the political resistance to him, the resistance to the the notion that he is a, in fact a citizen, right. him being called a liar, that wasn't being called out how we saw it, which was that was old fashioned racism. Of course, and he was being treated in a different way than if he was a white man, and it felt like any voice that it felt like he couldn't say that because then he would be sort of labeled the angry black right. man, and he was very good about. Remain, you know, through even being insulted, remaining the president for everybody in this country. And it felt like anyone else who would sort of point it out would get accused of being perpetuating racism as opposed to calling it out. So that silencing of the racial discussion was what we 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 felt like Luther needed to scream (laughs) at, you know, at the at the screen, and we knew. That there are so many people who want those things voiced, and it wasn't happening. Right, East-West College Bowl. I think that was one of the most watched, just even outside of your show, in terms of what's gone viral. A lot of your sketches mm-hmm. went viral online. I think that's up there with the with among the most as far as views. In this case, it's a commentary, I guess, on the on some of the crazier names of athletes out there, and just laugh out loud, cry hilarious. So. I'll tee that one up for you. That was just, you know, an observation. You know, all you need for a a funny sketch or a funny movie is one funny observation. You can play that game hard. (laughs) So I wrote the East-West Bull sketches. You know, that was kind of this instantly knew what the the game of the scene was going to be. And then – and then the fun was getting to sit down and come up with all those names and then order the names so it tells the story of the the game of the sketch – when I first showed Keegan the East West Bowl on paper, yeah, uh, it was the hardest I've ever seen him laugh. Really, yeah, That's he awesome. was on on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the third of the three is is I would think of all the sketches you did, maybe the one that had the highest production value, and I think maybe even just the most to say. And I, I would imagine it's going to be studied in colleges like the one I heard you just spoke at today mm-hmm. for uh, UCLA for. Forever and He's that Negro Town, Negro Town, which somebody didn't mention at UCLA to me today that they were talking about it in class. So I'm not that. surprised at all because I mean this is an example of how something can be so hilarious but also so smart. So I want to ask you about that one. That one began as a a bunch of writers just sort of fooling around with the song Negro Town. We were kind of envision, they, you know, it was it was very clear we were sort of envisioning this. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers style <laughs> musical. And I think the first incarnation of it was back in that that time. And then there was this place. And it, it originated as kind of like this play on the, the derogatory nature of, you know, this place where all the happy Negroes are. And that time, you know, I think my sort of contribution to that sketch was this idea was kind of what it became the scene around it and what if this was not this derogatory thing but what if this was the black utopia we always wanted and then it just sort of it went from there the music and scene were written by Becky Drysdale and Phil Jackson and the concept of Negro Town was come up with by I believe all the writers Mm -hmm. certainly Colton Dunn you know another fantastic writer he's on Superstore now and you know I just gotta give a shout out to all the departments of Key and Peele which came together for that but led by Peter Atencio who uh, was the director of 90, 70% of the sketches we wow. ever did. Wow. He, he directed the Keanu movie as well. And he's, you know, one of my, he's younger than me, but he's one of my mentors mm-hmm. as, a, as an artist. And you guys, that's an example of where it's, you know, something like the East West College Bowl sketch. I mean, it's funny. It's just outright funny. Doesn't necessarily have, I don't know, maybe not as much to say about 
society, pro- social problems or whatever. But here with, with Negrotown, I would think that what more effective way could there be to shine a light on police brutality and so many of the things that go on there where, where you're the MC, but this is what's going on around you. And I just, I imagine that got a larger reaction maybe in some ways than others. Yeah, I think it's a damn near perfect sketch. Mm-hmm. And I think the the timing of it was particularly dangerous. You know, we were really just sort of beginning to deal with Trayvon and and Mike Brown and Philando Castile, all the, the murders that were happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one of the virtues that I really got to work on at Key and Peele was this idea that you have to bite off a sort of impossible task as far as taste and and, and, and moral. Like, what is the last thing we want to laugh about? Yeah. That's the thing we need to laugh about the most. Uh, that's the thing that has the most cathartic capabilities, if we can do it. So, you know, much like you see with Get Out, the so many of these sketches of Key and Peele are taking something difficult and seeing how we can twist this. What is the way you would enjoy consuming this message yeah. or this idea or at least promote discussion. Absolutely. I'm sure it, it, it's certainly done that. So now after your fifth season in 2015, a season for which you eventually finally won a variety sketch Emmy, which was nice and, and beating meanwhile, SNL and others that, I mean, that you'd clearly held in very high regard for your whole life. Why did you guys choose to end before even the Emmy, that that was that was going to be up for Campiel. Was there something you were burning that you were itching to do already, or you just knew that was you want to go out on a, at a certain point with Campiel? What was that about? At that point, I knew I wanted to make Get Out. Okay. So I knew I wanted, I, you know, that what I had sort of set out to do in 2008 or whatever was kind of it was. I, I felt it the beginning of it coming together. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Get Out was good. I felt like I had said what I wanted to say in sketch. Mm-hmm. Keegan felt the same. Mm-hmm. And so it was It was just really this other thing of following what's fun for us. I read that at the beginning, Get Out was not necessarily even going to be specifically about race. That it was going to be just generally about the outsider. And so what was it that made it about race and almost a play on guess who's coming to dinner and mm-hmm. a million important horror movies. How did, how did you wind up going in that direction with it? So the, the, you know, writing this movie spanned maybe six years or something like that, you know, and five of those years was this process of figuring out what the movie should be. Mm-hmm. So I've, I, I talk about, you know, I talk about different different phases of figuring out what the movie was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's all you have to remember that's over a five year yeah. stretch. Yeah. So the very beginning, I knew I wanted to make a, a horror movie and I had this idea of just a, a guy going up to his girlfriend's house and that all of her old friends from school would be there. I don't think I necessarily knew it was even gonna be a black guy, mm-hmm. you know. My mm-hmm. and this goes to Part of the system that Get Out is about that holds black people, other minorities, women, holds us back. Part of the system is in our own minds. And so for me, there was a lot of self-inflicted walls I had to kind of get past in thinking about why this movie was possible. Mm -hmm. One of them, you know, here I am, like first thing I'm writing is like I'm writing a movie about white people. And at some point I realized, you know what, what am I, what am I doing? This isn't, that's not even me, but I had the outsider and I was like, you know what, if I'm going to make something that only I can make, it's just gotta be Mm -hmm. the, the horror movie that by the way, it probably won't go anywhere because I'm making a black protagonist, but that's okay. When you say not go anywhere, you mean nobody's going to want to make it. No one's going to want to make it. And at that point, were you even thinking that somebody would let you who had not yet directed direct the movie or you're just writing with the hope that somebody will make it at this point like you know eight years before the movie came out i thought i i had to get over my own desire to get a movie made and i said you know what 
let's just write this movie for me. Mm-hmm. Write the movie I want to have fun writing because again, the the purpose for me was get better. Right. right? It wasn't right. it wasn't come out of 2012 with a right. project. Right. It was just get better, and to do that, I just had to follow what felt right and what felt fun. And so, you know, of course, I'm starting with starting with this idea of like, what could I sell? And then moving away from that mm-hmm. was actually the liberating thing. So it's like, you know what? I'm fuck it. I'm going to make this about a black guy at a white girl's function. Right. And no one's ever going to make that movie, but damn, I'm going to have a good time writing it. Right. And then that evolved to, ooh, what if it's guess who's coming to dinner? What if it's, and why did guess who's coming to dinner worked so well? Because it's race aside, it's a re- relatable anxiety to meet your potential in-laws so i'm gonna do guess who's coming to dinner meets the stepford wives meets <laughs> rosemary's baby meets the help you right. know <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how that comes together now are you was there something you particularly wanted to communicate in telling the story that way or is it just this is going to be an entertaining fun way to to write a story or are you saying i want to make this specific point no, it, the first, I, I would say the first three years of conceiving it, it was all the mischief-making comedian in me, making the movie I wanted to watch. Right. And I didn't quite know why I wanted to watch or what the importance was. And it was some point in designing what the sunken place was <laughs> that, and, and this happens a lot to me in the process, it's this give and take of inspiration and then analyzation. Mm-hmm. And the sunken place kind of came from my guts and my my bones and my my subconscious. And as I'm writing it and figuring it out, I'm realizing it's about the prison industrial system. I'm realizing it's about the system that blocks the representation. You know, in the genre of thriller itself, we're relegated to the theater, but we our faces and our actions and our point of view isn't represented on the other side of the screen. Well, in fact, the title itself, why is it called Get Out? Because that's what we scream at the lead character. There's many reasons. I, you might be hinting at the, the Eddie Murphy bit, you know. Essentially that when you see a black person in a horror movie, at least historically, they're not going to last very long. That's right. They're not going to last very long. And the Eddie Murphy bit, of course, is black people in a horror movie would be, be a much different, much shorter story. <laughs> White, you know, and it goes to the Amityville, get right. out, you know. <laughs> you know, white people would lo- be still looking at the drapes, whereas right. a black family would come in and say, get out. <laughs> Too bad we can't stay, baby. I think Pryor did bits like that, right. you know. So, yeah, there's, you know, many, I, I had enough time with Get Out that everything has many meanings. Including, just to, to quickly prompt you, as far as horror references, if I say a movie, can you tell me, I know there are examples of, of ones that you drew upon for yours. So if I can just prompt you, The Shining. So The Shining, you know, I, first of all, there's many just very visual references I make to The Shining. One of the classic scenes in that movie where where Danny turns the corner in his tricycle and the, the twins are waiting at right. the side. You know, So this idea of the threat that's waiting patiently, that's, you know, when he, he comes into the kitchen for the first time and Georgina is standing there. So there's a lot of technique from from Kubrick and and just examining his whole his patience, his stillness, his restraint, sense of location, right? That was sense a- of location, right? We I wanted to teach the geography of the place. We have that whole tour sequence happen first right. and foremost, which is just so terrifying in The Shining, and you don't know why yet. Right. And then also, you know, uh, if you've seen Room 237, it sort of examines all the the Easter eggs and all the details that Kubrick may or may not have planted underneath the surface of the movie. And that's how I wanted to look at this movie. Halloween? Halloween is mostly represented in the first scene of my movie. Right. Where the, the fear of suburbia, which, you know, I realized had a completely different and bolder fear for African-American man especially in you know this day and age. So just having him walking down the street in this community where there's a sense something is going to happen. That's right. And, and subverting the environment that is usually felt like a, a safe place, right. which, and that's, of course, Halloween nailed that. Last of the three, I'll, I'll ask you about Silence of the Lambs. 
First of all, when, when Jodie Foster first meets Hannibal Lecter, an example of the exact same scene from The Shining, right? He's just standing there waiting for her patiently, politely. Right. And it's just the creepiest thing in the world. <laughs> and then I really focused on The Silence of the Lambs and the hypnosis yes, sequence, yes, yes. where I knew that this was, you know, on the surface was a conversation between two people that is pleasant, mm-hmm. even. And underneath the surface, there's this amazing power dynamic. I guess it's inevitable, and you had to know this going in, that when you're making a movie that is about a interracial couple where the black male ends up meeting the family of the white female, and you yourself are in an interracial marriage, and you've talked about, you know, in reference to Get Out, that you'd previously dated other white women. Obviously, I'm sure... People have to ask you, like, have you had experiences where you go to the meet the parents, essentially, and deal with bullshit like this? Or even in the anticipation of meeting the parents that you have that kind of... I've had my head cut open. Really? And someone else's brain put inside my skull. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I... um, (laughs) I was waiting to hear where we're going with that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is getting Um, dark. You know, I, I, I haven't really had that situation with a girlfriend, certainly not my wife. You know, I wrote this movie way before I met Chelsea. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that the the fears aren't there. And the fears of what, you know, it's like if you're meeting a, a parent and if they say something ignorant, it just has such huge connotations. It's like, oh, what a bummer. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, I think the just any time I felt like the only black person in the room with a bunch of white strangers... And I think that, you know, we're, we're the minority, so that's a situation many black people, many minorities of all kinds are, you know, a, a woman outnumbered at an event is seen as a woman before she's seen as a human being. Right. So I've heard. <laughs> so it was about something much more universal and that, that idea of being, you know, like where we first started, of being, being the other and being treated differently than how the group is getting to treat each other. For sure. That was more than any sort of direct pull from my life. With the last two or three minutes here, I just want to talk about the unbelievable response to the movie, which following a surprise screening at January's Sundance Film Festival, it opened in February, Black History Month, which I don't know if that's coincidental or not. I did tell them you have to open it. You did, okay. So just a few weeks, by the way, after the first black president of the United States is succeeded by the white man who slandered him more than any other person over the last eight years, which is just, I'm still processing, but... Which is not a coincidence. That it opened right after that, you mean? No, that... That, that the he man was who, who, got, who got elected. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. But do you think that opening the movie into that world at that time markedly impacted the way people responded to it, or would it have been a pretty similar response? And just to note, as far as what that response was... This movie, which cost, I think, $4.5 million, opened, and number one at the box office, $33.4 million opening weekend, 99% approval on Rotten Tomatoes, favorable rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which was the best reviews of the year. All these months later, it's now $253 plus million worldwide, still the best reviewed movie of the year. So all of that is amazing. Do you think that it was enhanced in any way by the fact that it came out at, at almost, you know, at this point? crazy time that we just described. The way I think of it is that we stopped talking about race for about almost eight years. You know, we stopped talking about it in any meaningful way. And when it was called out, it was the the, the, the person calling it out was yes. silenced. Yes. So what that did for racist people was get, it gave them room to grow and to embolden and to become prouder and to go unchecked. What that did for the victims of racism was create a need for someone to say something. Trump getting elected, I think, is the explosion that happened from many people in his base who now were emboldened and proud and they were given the keys to being emboldened. (laughs) Keys, no pun intended. Yeah. They were given the keys to being emboldened by this man who early on 
accused Barack Obama of not being a citizen and went unchecked. And he became that the hero of that movement. Get Out, I think, struck a chord because the victims of racism and the people who have seen it and and know it's been there and gone unchecked needed that catharsis. So I think it was two parallel explosions from two different sides of the the suppression of the discussion. That's really well put. And I have to just share, if, if I can, really quickly, how the weird circumstances in which I saw it, because you guys open on Oscars weekend. For what I do, I cover the Oscars and I cover this whole season, so I wasn't going to be able to go on opening weekend. But a week later, something like that, I think was St. Patrick's Day or something, and an Academy member who I've covered, who I just, like, it's an older lady who's just a sweet person, invited me to come to, they were doing something for St. Patrick's Day, like a dinner at, at her house. So I went, and there were a lot of other Academy members there, and everybody there was white, and everybody there was older except me. And I kept hearing everybody except one other woman next to me saying how much they had enjoyed Get Out and, and how much they loved it. And I was kind of thinking to myself that, not that an older white person obviously can't, because many do, and we'll talk about Norman Lear in a second, but like, I thought this was very interesting. And then at the end of the evening, the there's this one o- other older white lady who hadn't seen it yet. We were talking, and she's like, you know what, it's 11 o'clock or whatever, but you want to go. Now, I'm not normally going to movies at 11 o'clock with an older like senior <laughs> citizen white lady, but we both wanted to see the movie. So we went, and if you're ever going to go to a movie at 11 o'clock with a older white lady. I was really glad it was this one because afterwards there was a very interesting discussion. She also loved it. And I just think it's provoked more conversation than any other movie this year. And, I, and now I want to quote what Norman Lear said to you. I guess he moderated something shortly after the movie opened. He said, quote, I waited 94 years to see your film and it was worth every fucking minute of it. I was so transported. This was in reference to the first time he saw it. Then he goes on, quote, I saw it with my family a few nights later, and then again in the theater. I've never been more touched. I lose words when I think about how much this man's film affected me, close quote. So I guess where I want to close is just by asking you, you know, we're in Hollywood. We're talking at a time when race inside Hollywood and within the Academy is such a hot-button topic right now for for well-deserved reasons. For a long time, it seems like the only time you would see a movie with a black protagonist would be there would have to be a white savior. People talked about that. You would have, you know, this is the Academy that at one time in the same year did not nominate Do the Right Thing for Best Picture, but gave that award to Driving Miss Daisy, which Spike Lee, I think, understandably, is still a little pissed off about. But the point is, we we ourselves in this little niche of the world have our own problems with race. And I just wonder, now that your film's been released and had so much to say and been embraced by this community thus far, I I guess just do you feel like it has advanced the conversation in a way that you're pleased with? How has the response to your movie affected the way you think about Hollywood and race in Hollywood and the Academy and all of that? Well, You know, first of all, like, you know, so much of the point of the movie was to get people talking about these things. And, you know, it was, you know, that that was what it was about, right? It was like, we're not talking about this. Part of the reason we're not talking about it, it's so unpleasant to talk about race that it's almost a non-starter, you know, to have an intelligent, dignified conversation with somebody of a different race, for example, is almost impossible without the emotions getting so in between the the communication. And so the point of this movie ended up becoming, wouldn't it be great if people have conversations about race, but it doesn't get tense because they're having conversations about this f- fucking movie yeah. that they just yeah. saw. And they're, they're talking about the sunken place and they're talking about what happened at the party and all that kind of thing. And they're, they're starting from the same page. We've just seen this movie together as opposed to starting from different pages and trying to connect. And so that's the most pleasing part is that I, I, I just love seeing people go, you know, take their, their theories of the whole movie. I love these think pieces. And I just love hearing that 
we saw the movie and we went and we talked about it for a long time. I think the the industry has had this, you know, problem forever, and I'm I'm hopeful that we're at a turning point in in how we look of the the, the marketability, the profitability of of different perspectives. But you know, I think it's important to note that the thing. There's no one faction or individual that you can bl- I can blame for my having never seen a protagonist that looked and felt and thought like me in movies. There's no one person to blame. It really is a systemic failure. Everybody plays their part, some more than others. But as I told you earlier with Get Out, I was as much in my way because of the system I thought I had to fit into as anybody else. So it was me breaking through my own barriers that made this movie possible. And it's uh, no, it's amazing. And I really, it's so nice to get to meet you. And I, I thank you very much for doing this. It's thank great. you, man. Yeah, appreciate really it. Really great. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.